Hello, and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men. We're a podcast about board games, tabletop role-playing games, and tabletop war games when we get around to it. And today we're talking about Dragonlance. It's got lances, it's got dragons, I mean, it's got cool 80s artwork. What more do you want? I also remember it had a really annoying race of halfling variants that everybody seemed to hate. We'll talk about them. Uh, I'm your host, Troy, pronouns he, him. And my name's Ed. I'm the other talker. My pronouns are they and them. Uh, I'm out of elder brain juice today. Well, we're, you know, podcasting in the post-meridian, so you can drink other things. Fine. I'll just have to get that giant jug of corn liquor out of the cabinet and chug that. I mean, maybe wait until we start talking about some of the weirder shit before you chug that. Fair enough. So as I said, we're going to be talking about Dragonlance today, one of the classic Dungeons & Dragons settings, and the setting with maybe the most books? It's probably a close match between Dragonlance and the Forgotten Realms at this point, and I'll be honest, I don't want to be the one who has to count them. I never read the Dragonlance books, but I remember them being a thing back in the day. Yeah, they were a thing in a day before our day. But I did read them in middle school, so we'll talk about that a little. So it's been like a whole two days ago. Yeah, old men, remember? We're not old. I refuse. Time is still linear, man. It's a flat circle. That's my argument. But before we get to Dragonlance, we have a segment on this podcast called The Week in Hobby. I'll go first. I had two Dungeons and Dragons games. In my Wednesday game, the players had acquired an airship and finished getting it crewed out and registered and like provisioned. Uh, then they ran in, they took it for a ride and ran into some halflings riding dinosaurs as they were overflying the Talenta Plains in Eberron. And, uh, you know, halfling bandits on dinosaurs are what you're going to get there. Uh, they saw the bandits off. They continued on to a dwarven city that was in the middle of some stuff. And were like, you know what? We don't want to deal with the dwarves. We're just going to keep going. And keep going they did to a the castle of the Lady Ilmaro, who is an ancient and terrible lich. And oh boy, why? They're not going to have a good time there. Let me tell you that. Is this when you start uh, running Tomb of Horrors? No, because Tomb of Horrors is great fun. For the Dungeon Master. It's not fun for the people playing in it. But how else are you going to punish the players for going off of your carefully planned story arc? My story arc is not that carefully planned, first of all. And (laughs) second of all, I have a bunch of other shenanigans planned for them here. Presumably with them... Presumably ending with them escaping from and or fleeing from the castle. Uh, we're going to, like, a more pursuit-oriented mode after this meeting. You want to run? Oh, I'll give you a reason to run. Yes, well, they've got an airship, so they can run pretty quickly, or a skyship in Eberron. 
So they can run pretty fast. What uh what nation did they pick as a flag of convenience? Uh Valinar. The kingdom of mercenary elves. That works. They had had some dealings with the duke of the country and helped them out a bit, so it was much easier for them to register there. I was going to say, we'd have to figure out what the Aberon equivalent of Liberia is. Cubara. And speaking of Cubara, deep in the jungles of that country is where the other party of my D&D games is. Uh, they have, you know, been delving into these jungles and trying to uncover what happened to a previous expedition, and they ran into a merchant who, like, gave them some advice, offered to sell them some dinosaurs, they turned him down because they were trying to be stealthy, and then, like, 30 minutes later, one of the players was like, oh, damn it, I wish we had bought a Triceratops, that would have been so cool. When the DM offers to sell you dinosaurs, you buy dinosaurs. No, you don't need to be stealthy after that because you have dinosaurs. Yeah. But then they ran into some swamp zombies and a broken down Warforged Titan. If one of them had rolled spectacularly poorly, say a natural one with a ranged attack, it would have awoken the Warforged Titan and it would have stomped out and fought everything. But they did not do that. Instead, they just managed to, like, take out the swamp zombies pretty quickly. I assume that's where the Eberron version of uh, Suleiman the I went through the swamp and everything just got flooded and they had to abandon their, their giant war constructs. Uh, in this case, it yeah, it broke down from the... It was part of the previous expedition and broke down to the humidity and the just general terribleness of being in a jungle for months on end. Just don't go into the jungle. It doesn't want you there. Yeah, I, I would not go into a jungle. That, that would be my first thing. I just wouldn't go in. Um, but they've managed to reach some ruins that they think are Hakatovak. The, like, ancient cursed city of you know, where a demonic entity is guarded by a black dragon and maybe worshipped by said black dragon and the black scale lizard folk. It's not the right yeah, city. Yeah, definitely don't go in there. Yeah, it, it, they're not in the right city. And it, it, the, the big joke is going to be that as they uncover more stuff, there's a, we're digging in the wrong place moment. <laughs> um, where it turns out they're, they're not quite there yet and they have to keep going. So close and yet so far. Yeah. And also the journal that they have from the previous expedition is going to reveal more details about what the effects of being this deep in the jungle and so close to this messed up demonic entity entrapping city did to some of the people who were on the expedition. Sounds fun. Yeah, and that's been my weekend hobby. Ed, what have you been up to? Uh, I've been trying to make some infrastructure improvements to my painting area. I got the traditional gamer cabinet from uh, Ikea, which was much more of a pain in the ass to put together than I thought it would be. So now my minis that don't have a good place to live or that will be used frequently uh, have a place that's not buried in a closet. I also got some shelves that are going to kind of be like speed rails 
for uh, paints and such. Got a uh, ultrasonic cleaner that is now the home for my airbrush because I found that if I just leave it sitting in liquid, you can't dry out the paint and it doesn't get clogged. And then when I'm done, it does its little ultrasonic cleaning thing. So that seems to help my airbrush uh, with its functionality. A lot fewer problems since I started doing that. Making slow but steady progress on my 3D printed squats. Um, my 3D printer is very picky about what it likes to print in what quantities. So if I try to really add more than one model onto the build plate, it tends to not like it very much. So I'm having to kind of print even just little bits just individually because I would rather do it one at a time and know that it's going to work than waste several hours trying to print an entire plate of various little bits and have to keep doing it over and over and over again because it, you know, doesn't want to print stuff for whatever reason. Um, you just got to print entire sprues. I mean, that's kind of what it is because it's, they're on like sprue sprues anyway, except we call them supports. I mean, yeah, but but you just print the little you print whole sprues with the pieces and then you cut the pieces off. And yeah, it's a great way to waste filament is what it is. <laughs> and I printed a uh, resembles but is legally distinct from uh the alien movies, starship crew characters. And in the description, it said 28 millimeter, which is, you know, the standard tabletop figure size. So it was like, oh, sweet. These will be like support characters for the dwarves because all the dwarves, they're very combat-y looking and I need some kind of specialist characters to do all the other miscellaneous stuff for Stargrave. Pushing so, buttons, grabbing loot. Yeah, so they're going to be like the button pushers and whatnot. And when I printed it off, I then realized that when the artist said 28 millimeter, they meant 28 millimeter true scale. So they're very small. Um, and rather than trying to muck with the, with the STL files, I was like, you know what? They're like just small enough that I could pass these off as space halflings Yay. that work with the dwarves. Space halflings. So I'm going to try and print a couple more of them. Ooh, ooh. Uh, might... Do the space halflings live in like really comfortable space habitats? Um, I would assume so because they're part of the mining union and I would hope that the union gives them good benefits as as well as the rest of the workers. But I guess maybe, maybe if you're stuck on the space, if you're in the space station pushing buttons instead of on the asteroid with a futuristic pickaxe, maybe your life is cushier. Well, no, I was thinking it would be like in O'Neill cylinder, except instead of, you know, cities and stuff inside, it's just full of like pastoral shire lands. <laughs> Right? Because I would be, and, and like then it. like cottage core style stuff inside a giant spinning cylinder. Sci-fi cottage core. Yeah. I mean, that's what halflings like would it. be doing, right? 
Yeah, so I'll need to make like some weird cottage core sci-fi scatter terrain now. Oh yes, that would be fantastic. I already I've been cruising around on my mini factory getting uh various STL files and one of the ones that I bought was a little uh bonsai tree and I have a little plastic capsule that had a pencil topper that I got for my wife and I was like this kind of looks like a dome or something that I could use so I'm thinking I'm going to try and print like a little tiny bonsai tree and put it underneath the plastic dome so that it's like some kind of prized bonsai in a contained environment and see if I can use that as some kind of token or terrain piece or something like that. Yeah, I've got like a half fill or a half finished um terrain piece that's like a it's a clear plastic cylinder with like fake plant stuff inside it so it looks like it's a farm or like a hydroponic mm -hmm. farm unit thing um that I really just need to like put the finishing greebles on and paint up. Um, yeah, I was going to I was going to try something similar to that because I get a bunch of broken camera domes and stuff from work. Uh, and I was going to get like some N or like Z scale like farm uh, decorations and have it be like a little tiny miniaturized farm with like mouse sized cows in it as some kind of like crazed sci fi experiment. And then other than that. Uh, started playing Go again after an extended break and getting my ass kicked consistently, which is my MO for playing Go or really any game because I'm not that smart and not really great at any game. So don't say that. Uh, uh, I can't. I was trying to think if there was actually any board games or any game really that I'm actually any good at and I couldn't come up with anything. I think you're pretty solid at Frostgrave. I don't actually know if I've won a game of Frostgrave. You there, you told me about that one where you instantly aced the enemy wizard and he died. Yeah, and then I died on the next turn though. <laughs> yeah, but you killed him, therefore I... I I'm the one bleeding, therefore, which makes me the victor. I think Frostgrave is kind of a weird thing in terms of like my win-loss ratio because I feel like I'm very much a like go for the throat kind of player in that game. So I will do a good job of like picking off the other player's wizard or their apprentice or maybe some like particularly beefy characters. But in a majority of the games, my opponent will run off with a large majority of the treasure. That is a consistent theme that I've noticed is that uh, they do a better job of just getting the treasure and running, whereas I spend a lot. I waste a lot of time trying to tangle up their powerhouse characters and end up forgetting about the treasure completely and then either getting killed or, you know, the turns expire before I can actually grab anything and take it off the table. Yeah, I'm I play for the objectives. Which I think you knew, you know, because I've done that multiple times in games we've played and have won because of it. Yep. Um, but I also like the fighting aspect, so you know, th that's why there's we certain need... games I don't enjoy too much because they're too much fighting, are too much objectives, and not enough combat or something. 
Although I think maybe I did win a game of Space Hulk against you because I think we both lost as the Space Marines. Yes, the Space Marines Space are Marines have very a hard time. Chewy. Yes. <laughs> you you would think for being like Ultimate Warrior, uh, super space monks, they would know that if they're going into a small area like that, having that big bulky Terminator armor is a recipe for disaster. They should be sending in scouts who can be nimble and can move around rather than the dudes who are like, hold on, brothers, we all need to turn around at once because my shoulders are too big. Well, I think the problem is that uh, Space Hulks are fucking terrible and are full of like radiation and crap. So if you send in the lightly armored guys, they just die. Yeah, I guess that's that's fair enough. But I mean, they find like they find like orcs and stuff in Space Hulks. And... You think orc? You think radiation kills orcs? Yeah, that was that was yeah that was that was a dumb idea. The cold vacuum of space doesn't kill orcs because orcs don't notice it. And even if they die, they still win because they die. Yeah, that's orc logic. You can never win. All right, but but we but we digress because it's like fifteen minutes in and we're still not onto the main topic. I love digressions. Digressions are fun. But we're talking about Dragonlance, a Dungeons and Dragons setting, one of the classic settings, and I'd say one of the core of the second edition settings, really. Originally created by Laura and Tracy Hickman, a husband and wife writing team, they came up with the idea in the car on the way to a job interview with TSR. This is before or after... uh... Ravenloft. It was published in 1984 for the first time, so that puts it just slightly after Ravenloft. Well, can't you, you can't always bat a thousand. The setting of Dragonlance has seen a ludicrous number of novels, game modules, and other materials. Uh, more than 150 books published for like in the setting. Um, from a variety of authors, it's one of the largest, like, shared universes in terms of just fantasy shared universes that exist. I'm going to say that's a crime. We need 150 Eberron books. I'd like to see more Eberron books, yes. Although one of the... One of the things I'll talk a little bit about in this in just a second is why I don't actually like that many books so the core books are essentially there's three of them the dragons of autumn twilight dragons of winter night and dragons of spring dawning these three books cover the events of the war of the lance which is a series of characters meeting important npcs doing fetch quests and then having a big battle against evil dragons Sounds like D&D. Yeah, it really is. Lots of fest. The second book is basically a series of fetch quests. <laughs> the worst kind of quest. Uh, yeah, I don't know about that. There's, As someone who like run, writes and runs a lot of their own stuff, fetch quests can be a really good way of buying time for the players to do something uh, without having to do a whole lot of work. Because telling the players, oh, you have to go recover the magical sword of blah, 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 is an easy way to get them invested in something and to delve into a dungeon in order to find this sword and it 
takes up like four sessions. Meanwhile, you're like, all right, what's the bad guy's motivation? I don't know. <laughs> Quick, look over there. I need to do more more story. Yeah, it, essentially fetch quests are fantastic for that because you can send people off to do things and just sort of write stuff around that without having to advance the plot all that much. I read these books in middle school, and at the time I thought they were great. But looking back at it now and, you know, doing some research on them, I don't think so. Um, the books and the ones that come with them are very much designed to have... They don't have a lot of lasting impact. They are very generic in terms of what their setting is, in terms of what the story is. Um, and they're not amazingly written. They're competently written, certainly. They're, they're very 1980s fantasy. Um, they're no Tolkien. They're no, I don't know, I'm trying to think of another fantasy author that, like... George R. R. Martin. They're no George R. R. Martin. They do not have <laughs> the same depth of interesting and motivated characters that he does. I'm also assuming less nudity. Way less nudity, because remember, written in Damn. the 80s, aimed at, like, high school, college-age kids who might be interested in Dungeons & Dragons, you know, fantasy market stuff. But Martin is really good at writing politics and at writing characters that have interesting motivations and will go to great lengths to pull that stuff off, right? That's... Yep. All of his things, all of his characters have an understandable, interesting motivation and like a, a reason for what they, why they do what they do. Dragonlance, not so much. It's a lot of them are sort of, this character exists because we need a big, strong, slightly dumb fighter archetype. I am here for plot reasons. This character exists because we need a half-elf who's good at doing the talking. This character exists because I came up with a cool race that I want to introduce in this book, and so everybody's going to hear about the Kender now. No no Mary Sue homebrew. Yeah. Uh, there's another one that's even worse than that. Thing is, I don't want to talk too much about the events of the book or the characters in them because we're talking about the setting. If you wish to learn about the novels, you can go read them. They have been in print for a long time. You can find them at a used bookstore. You'll probably pay less than five bucks each if you get used copies. Just just do that. Uh, they do have some fantastic cover art by Larry Elmore. So, you know, classic fantasy illustrator. Um, the setting of the Dragonlance story is the world of Kryn. K-R-Y-N-N. And specifically the continent of Ancelon. Most of the important events, uh, and when adventurers are usually set, take place during the Fourth Age, what is known as the Age of Despair. Because, um, I guess the... Because you need the dramatic tension. You need some dramatic tension uh, in the previous age, like there was a quasi-Atlantis kind of civilization that collapsed, and so this is after that. And is kind of a pretty standard medieval fantasy era. The setting has all the standard races that you find in Dungeons and Dragons, or that you found in Dungeons and Dragons. 
and also two special new ones. Uh, when I say found, tieflings, not really a thing back when these books were being written, so you're not going to find a lot of tieflings in Dragonlance. You do have the two special races that are specific to the setting. The first one is Kender. Boo! Kender are basically just kleptomaniac halflings that, unlike halflings, do wear shoes. That's that's really the deal. They are halflings that like to steal stuff more than anything else. They there's a lot of stuff about them being like childlike and you know uncontained by needing. They don't see it as stealing. They see it as borrowing. I don't like Kender. Kender are a very they're a really strong example of just the lol random chaotic neutral and as such they're not fun to play with someone who's being a kender because that person's going to be like i steal all your things and you're going to be like stop it and they're going to be like no ha 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 i set things on fire and you're going to be like uh can we just send him to jail for arson already <laughs> the second race is more of a villain-specific thing. It's the Draconians. Draconians are draconic humanoids made by corrupting the eggs of dragons, and they serve as the foot soldiers in the settings like evil army dragon cultist thing. They are, Those sound cool. They are interesting because they're essentially the proto-dragonborn. Draconians served as a way to introduce, like, Dragon people, before the Dragonborn were a thing in Dungeons and Dragons. I was going to be like, those sound cool, we should bring those back, and then you immediately said Dragonborn, I was like, oh yeah. Yeah, so this is kind of... I'm not going to say that it's directly, oh, Draconians are now just Dragonborn, but it's where that idea sort of came from. And in 4th edition, they were like, no... Dragonborn and Draconians are two different things, and da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> no, they're not. Whereas, Just admit it. in if I was doing 5th edition, I mean, it kind of makes sense from a storyline that they would be two different things, because reasons and plot and the way the books are written. But if I was doing 5th edition, I would just use Dragonborn stats for Draconians. And just say, yes, Draconians are what Dragonborn are called in this world. That's just how... I think you would roll with it. And I think Draconians and people wanting to play Draconians and do that sort of thing is where Dragonborn really come from. It's where that seed was planted. So, to recap, races, you have Kleptomaniac Halflings and Quasi-Dragonborn. Like I said, nobody bats a thousand. Nobody bats a thousand, yes. Now, the setting is called Dragonlance, and... That is because there are items referred to as dragon lances. Big, long uh, spears. I thought you were going to say it because it involved lancing dragons. Well, yes, no. The dragon lances in the setting are lances or spears, and they are the only weapon that can kill a dragon. Boo. Uh, you can use magic to kill a dragon, but if you can't use magic, the only way to kill one is a dragon lance. And because dragons are all over the place and used as, like, cavalry a lot of times, 
having a dragon lance, a way to kill a dragon, is super important. And a lot of the fetch quests in the books are going to get dragon lances. Come on, get more creative. You know, so that's where the name of the setting is. Well, I mean... I, I kind of like that the dragon lance is a lance that is used to kill a dragon. That's kind of a cool setting concept. Or, like, that's a cool item, right? I'm not sure I would use it as the name of a setting myself. But that's, you know... Those are some of the cool things in the game. Let's talk about the actual places in the setting. I got four or five of these that I pulled out that are important places that show up in the books, really. Uh, the first one being Abyssinia. It is the generic good person starting nation. And when I say generic good person starting nation, allow me to tell you what the names of the three major towns are. Solus, Haven, and Gateway. I'm guessing Solus is evil. Nope, all three are good. The This is the, like... This is the Shire or your... This is where your heroes come from and then they go off into the world and have crazy adventures and stuff. It, it, it's good aligned. There are humans and dwarves. There's an elven nation off to, like, the forest is where the elven nation is from. Like, it's... It's just everybody has a nice time in Abyssinia. You got all the, you got all the noobs on the free trial just hanging around, taking up space on the server. It's the starting country. It, it's where you do your tutorial before you move onwards. And then we have uh, Sylvanesti and Qualanesti, the two elvish kingdoms. They are both lush and forested and very pretty. One is kind of like high elves and the other is kind of like wood elves, but not to a like 100 extent. Um, one, gets one gets destroyed during one of the series of books, during... The war, the, the war of Chaos, or the War or the Cataclysm, or... Look, there's so many books, they have big events, they blow up cities. One of them gets destroyed during one of these... I'm not going to tell you which one. But uh, Qualistani is... borders the previous, like, generic good guy kingdom, so that's where your elf is probably from if you're making an elf for the setting. Uh, then we have the nation of Solomnia. A large nation of mostly good-aligned people with a big order of knights. It's it, it's a Western Europe fantasy kingdom with a variety of nobles and knights and that sort of thing. Down with the monarchy. Yeah, I don't know if it's exactly a monarchy or if it's like a parliament of nobles or something, but it's very much a generic England or France setup with the knights. Um... The Knights of Solomon Solomonia. The Knights of Solomonia are the like cavalry. They're the ones that you probably have to go get a dragon lance for. You're the cavalry, do it yourself. Yeah. I mean, some of them ride dragons, so that's cool. And then of course there's Thorbarnin. It's a dwarven kingdom, consisting of six large cities inside of a mountain. How creative. Yeah, 
it's it's a standard dwarven kingdom. Um, oh, and also there was a previous one that was destroyed in a prior age. Also, how creative. Yes. Uh, Dragonlance draws heavily from a lot of existing fantasy works. And, I mean, part of that is just it's a shared universe. There are many people writing in it, and not everyone is going to be super creative. So you get a lot of weird generic fantasy things. Um, one other location in the continent that I kind of like is the home of the gnomes, which is known as Mount Nevermind. <laughs> That's a good name. Everyone calls it that because the gnomes are hyperactive machinist types and their name for the mountain is too long for anyone else to remember. And the gnome city inside of Mount Nevermind is full of artificers and, like, clockwork creations and stuff. The best parts of D&D. Yeah, the Mount Nevermind is actually kind of interesting. I like a society of crazy clockwork building gnomes. Take that, dwarves. Yeah, dwarves. Get back to me when you build some machinery. Or, or do something interesting, like the dwarves live in floating castles or something. Sky Dwarves. Yeah, that's what I'm on about. You know, uh, yeah, the dwarves are very standard. The elves are very standard. The humans tend to come from generic uh, fantasy kingdoms of nice people or Western Europe. Are they easily corrupted? Uh, yeah, a bit. Dragonlance is... And that's, you know, Dragonlance, the setting is pretty generic that being said the books and the characters from those books are why people like it the like pair of brothers one of whom is a fighter the other one is a morally gray mage i prefer morally morally flexible yes morally flexible mage and in fact let's talk about the mages there are three orders of mage in the setting. The White Order, the Red Order, and the Black Order. Can you guess which ones, what the alignment restrictions are on these various orders? Uh, I'm going to go with uh, Black is good. Red is neutral. And White is evil. Well, one out of three. Woo! The white order is good, the red order is neutral, the black order is evil. More than any other D&D setting, Dragonlance is perhaps the strongest example of color-coded for your convenience. <laughs> uh, between all the evil dragons being chromatic and all the good ones being metallic, the wizard orders, the like good, neutral, and evil deities that, that are just... Yeah, the, the three major deities of the setting are one is good, one is neutral, one is evil. And then you have a bunch of other minor deities that fill in the standard D&D spots, but the story tends to be about those three major deities and or the chaos, which is just sort of a force trying to destroy the world. Again, kind of generic. But Dragonlance color code stuff so that it's very obvious and kind of handy for adventurers. 
Be like, quick, check the check the uh, adventurer's handbook. Quick, what color is that wizard? Red? Okay, cool. He he's you know we can probably buy and sell stuff from him. What color is that wizard? Oh, he's wearing a black robe. Kill him. You know, it's it's a setting that doesn't have a whole lot of subtlety. Which, I guess, is fine for a fantasy novel that was written in the 80s. Um, but, like I said, Dragonlance has been around for a while. And so, because of that, um, it's been published a lot. Um, there have been Dragonlance settings published in 1st edition, in 2nd edition, in 3rd edition... And then there was a um, some weird stuff involving them in like the fourth edition era, where maybe they were the authors were supposed to get um, another trilogy of novels, and then Wizards of the Coast decided not to do it, and weird shit. Let's not get into what happened during fourth edition era. We don't talk about 4th edition. Again, the, basically, there was maybe... There was some confusion as to what was going on. There was a lawsuit. The The lawsuit seems to have been dropped, and now there are new books coming out sometime in the next year or so. And a 5th edition adventure module titled Dragonlance Shadow of the Dragon Queen is Ugh. coming out at, around the end of this year. Come on, wizards, just suck it up and give us Dark Sun. Give us what we actually want. Well, the thing is, a lot more people are familiar with Dragonlance than are familiar with Dark Sun. And that's a problem. So they're going to give you Dragonlance first. Boo. Yeah. I mean, like I said, Dragonlance has been published since 1st edition. And then, you know, published again in 2nd edition, 3.3 and 3.5. And, you know, is going to be in 5th edition at the end of the year. So, they're going to give you some Dragonlance. Uh, the module is set during the War of the Lance. Which is sort of that time period that we've been, that the original books were set in and that sort of stuff. And also, it's apparently going to have a board game that comes out along with it um, as sort of a war game thing that allows you to do military battles alongside your D&D campaign. Yes, that might that might be what gets you into it. Yeah, um, we'll see how actually good it is or not. I mean, my... My fantasy army game of choice right now at the moment is Game of Thrones anyway, so if they can manage to dethrone that, I'll be impressed. I think this is going to be more of a Risk-like thing. Oh. Where it's not a miniatures war game, but a board game war game. Oh, that's right. You said, yeah, you said board game. Um... Yeah, I, I still might check it out. Yeah, I, I think it might be interesting. We'll look into it when it comes out. End of the year-ish. 
But yeah, Dragonlance has had a long history and it's been heavily published and a component of TSR and Wizards of the Coast. So of course they're going to make a new thing for it. Dark Sun is something that we would like them to do soon. Come on, capitalize on that Dune. Well, the next Dune isn't coming out until what, next year at the earliest? I think so. So they could do a Dark Sun for that. They need to do Dark Sun for that because if they only make the two Dune movies, it's going to leave a giant Shai Hulud shaped hole in my life. Yeah, in fact, that would kind of make sense if that came out at the end of next year. So I just, I need, I need more Dune in my life. The books are not enough. And we will talk about Dark Sun and what Dark Sun is and why we like Dark Sun so much at a later date because it's still a few years off on our list of uh, settings. I always forget we're going chronologically and not in alphabetical order. Yep. Um, if we were, we wouldn't have done Forgotten Realms yet. Technically, I think the next one might be Spelljammer. Woo! Also or, good. Or, no, I think Forgotten Realms. Technically, we haven't done Forgotten Realms yet. Well, if we did if we did forget that, it would be relevant. Yes, no, because Forgotten Realms uh, is first published in, like, 85. So, chronologically, that. Um, and the first campaign set wasn't released until 1987. Spoiler alert for a future episode. Yes, we'll, we'll talk about that, and we'll talk about some of the stuff. Forgotten Realms is, I think, a more interesting setting than Dragonlance. So that will have some, uh, have more to do. Um, it's, again, probably the second most published book series in the that's related to uh dungeons and dragons because holy crap there's a lot of books a lot of novels and i think that's just about it for dragonlance and you do you have any random questions about dragonlance uh not particularly my only real exposure to dragonlance was i think we did a campaign in dragonlance way back in the day and i think you had a kender character and i don't remember anything particularly memorable from that campaign. Yes. Uh, that was from back in the like middle school, early high school, when I had just read the books. Got it. I I don't think I would repeat that experience. I, I... <laughs> that's, it's, that's about the era when people want to try that. And once they're past that, that's it's much better. So with that, we have a segment on this podcast called Board Game Corner. Woo! And what board game do you want to talk about today? It's my corner today. Uh, today I'll be giving you a brief overview of Pirates of the Spanish Main, originally published by uh, our beloved producer of mid to low priced uh, collectible games, WizKids. I think it's now owned by some conglomeration of us of entertainment things uh anyway uh the game 
is a pocket model game similar to the predecessor to the X-Wing uh, tabletop game. You would buy a little pack of cards and it would have uh, styrene punch out cards and each pack you would get two sailing ships, an island, a set of tokens, which were uh, gold coins and occasionally a couple of characters. And then you would get a small printed rule book and a little itty bitty D6. And the idea was that you would put these little uh, styrene ships together and you would sail them around. And the objective of the game was to either sink all of the opposing fleets and uh, you could tow their uh, hulks back as prizes or gather uh, the most treasure you can off the islands. Each island would get a certain number of little uh, doubloon tokens that would be uh, face down on the island. And then once you actually brought it back to uh, your home island, you could flip it over and see how much it was worth. Um, that was pretty much the game. Each ship had a number of masts that acted as its HP and also its attack strength. So if you had a little itty bitty ship, um, it couldn't take a lot of hits. It couldn't hold a lot, but could potentially move around quite fast. It, uh, you had two movement speeds that were based on the size of the card itself. They're about the size of a credit card. So if you had slow movement, you would move along the narrow side. If you had long movement, you would move along the long side. And as you would take damage, you would take masts off the hull. And then once your all of your masts are gone, your ship is afloat, and then it can be either sunk or it can be captured by the other players. Uh, they did a number of expansions. The original one was just kind of like generic pirates from the golden age of piracy. And then later on, you had uh, stuff that was specific to the American Revolution. So you get a lot of British ships and a lot of American ships. Uh, they did some sets that were more fantastical. So you can end up with like ghost pirate ships and sea monsters. Oh, um, oh, I want them to keep going to like the American Civil War. I want ghost monitors and ghost Merrimacks. I don't remember if there were any ironclads in the series, oh. but that would have been really cool. Um, or a tiny but, little Hunley that kills everyone on board. There were a couple of uh, submarines Hooray. in the game. I think one of them might have been the Nautilus from 2000 Leagues Under the Sea. I don't remember, but there was that one and then there was another smaller one. And those ones were cool because they had um, a little extra bit that would clip on to the base of the submarine. So when you submerged, you would just take a majority of the model off the base and then you would have just this little kind of ocean uh, piece and it would have a little tiny fin, kind of like a shark, to show that it was uh, submerged. And at the time, it was a pretty fun, pretty simple, pretty cheap beer and pretzels type game. I think a pack costs about the same as a pack of magic cards at the time. Um, I think it went out of print in 2011, sometime around there. Uh, but you can still find the pack, the packs online for a relatively reasonable price. So if you want a good kind of beer and pretzels game, uh, that's an easy one to recommend. And I remember we played once where one guy on our team had all sea monsters. So we had like a Kraken, a giant shark and a giant crab. And he couldn't capture any treasure as the giant monsters, but he could try and sink everybody else. And I think he won just on the fact that his monsters ate all the other ships in the game. Yay, sea monsters. 
so yeah pirates of the spanish main uh take a look at it it's pretty cool uh, it's got fairly nice art the ships are nicely detailed it's cheap yeah try it yeah definitely nailed that recommendation yeah you did you have some of the ships right I have a lot of the ships. Um, yes, we're gonna have to play the crap out of that when we get together next time. Yeah, and in, if you if you have like any other rule sets for other games that involve, uh, I think they would be like one three thousandth scale uh, sailing games. I have one called Fighting Sail from Osprey Games. I know there's a whole bunch of other nautical games out there because nautical war gamers are their whole own species of nerd. I um, mean. I, I would go so far as to say nautical war gamers are the original war gamers. Yeah. That that tracks. Um, um yeah. Even if you even if you don't necessarily play the Spanish main game itself, if you have any other games that you find that require little miniature ships, but you don't want to pay out the nose for them because those little model ships get quite expensive. Uh the Spanish main ships are the perfect size and you know, they're fairly good representations of realistic ships. So they have uses in that, that as well. Uh, but the time that I got it, I think was around the time when the popularity was starting to wane. So I remember at one point I had introduced my boss at the time to the game and he was just like absolutely enamored with it. So we went to our local game store down there and they were selling the packs for a dollar each. And he bought every pack they had and so his office was just covered in these little tiny plastic ships. <laughs> nice. All right. So Pirates of the Spanish Main. If you can find it, buy it. Yep. Um, that has been our episode. Uh, thanks for listening. Rate, subscribe, like, comment. Follow us on Twitter at Knoll Country. Follow us on Instagram Knoll Country. You know, if you want, you don't have to. We're not your boss. Um, we aren't management of any type. Um, Ed, what are you plugging today? Uh, you can follow me on Instagram and Adam Madness. Uh, you can see me posting my 3D print shenanigans there. Uh, I'll have some more updated photos of my uh, squat miners union. And if you uh, if you look around on our on our Twitter, you might find some ads for the Knoll Country branded domestic mimic. Uh, they're good for keeping Kender out of your out of your dungeon. Uh, as soon as those Kender come in, they're going to see that that mimic chest, and that will be no longer be a problem in short order. But if you want to spend your money on something that's actually real and actually matters, uh, go ahead, give your money dollars to. Uh, uh, sorry, Colors United. Uh, it's a good charity, or any others that support reproductive justice, LGBTQIA plus rights, Ukrainian relief. All those are good options. Yeah. Yep. Do all that, and uh, as always, go Knowles. Go Knowles.